Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday. It's January 27th. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We got some uh, nice balmy plus temperatures here over the last couple of days. We saw a bit of sun over those two days. So I would say overall it was a pretty decent weekend and I hope most of you out there felt the same way and are now uh, you know, ready to start a new week. At the end of today's show, I'm going to be joined by the voice of the Kamloops Blazers, Mr. John Keane, after Kamloops went 1-1 one and one over a pair of games in Prince George. The Blazers won 3-0 on Friday night before falling 3-1 on Saturday. A goal by the Cougars' Johnny Hooker, 3 minutes and 57 seconds into the second period on Saturday night, ended the Blazers' shutout streak at 230. 34 and a half minutes. That was close to a full four games. Uh, here is John Keane with a call on that goal that ended that Blazer shutout streak. Cougars go D to D back in their own zone. And now here's Shetler. He will gain center. Throw that puck in deep. Zabransky and Max Martin turn for it. Zabransky plays it up the wall. Kofer was there, and he'll get it to Shetler. Shetler knocks it now. Side of the goal. Max Martin to it. He'll flip it ahead, but couldn't find anybody. Long shot. Shetler. That's blocked by Martin. Comes. There's another shot. Deflection scores. Hit a couple of bodies on the way. I think that was an own goal. That might have been deflected in off a blazer in front. And the Cougars have the first goal. Tough way to end a very long extended shutout streak for the team, but uh, you know, it did have a pretty good run there as mentioned, over 200 plus minutes of shutout hockey, so not a bad way to go unfortunately they did fall here on a Saturday night ending, I think what was a 9 game win streak, so uh, a tough way to end things off, the Blazers had had difficulty against the Cougars team this year, PG is 3-2 and two against the Blazers in their 5 contests so far this season, despite having just 13 total wins on the season, so 3 out of 13 wins coming up against Kamloops, not a bad record for a team that's uh, maybe in a bit of a rebuilding stage here. Head coach Sean Cluson was on the NL Morning News today and had this to say about a team that they have had trouble with this year, of course, talking about those pesky Cougars. You know, we'll definitely look uh, some more at it uh, this morning, you know, preparing for practices this week. But, uh, you know, sometimes you don't want to get too involved in that. I mean, we did put up 38 shots to 16, you know, at some point. You know, somebody's just got to bury one of their their, their 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 attempts. So, you know, we we keep some some stats. We look at some things, and uh, you know, our score against those guys, you know, isn't as high as we'd like it to be. So there's there's just a few little areas that you know I think over the course of a game add up, and um, you know, it's, it's nothing drastic, but it's 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 definitely something that you know we we've got them a few more times, so it's definitely something that we'll look at. So Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keen will join me at around the 50-minute mark of today's show to break it all down. Of course, talking about that one-in-one weekend and maybe even look ahead to uh, this Wednesday night here at home in Kamloops. The Blazers will be playing host to the Spokane Chiefs. Also on today's show, the city of Kamloops has included a 2.76% increase in property taxes in its provisional budget for 2020. Back in November, Finance Director Kathy Humphrey says that there would be, or sorry, she said that would put the average property tax at $2,267 
$7 per household, an increase of about $61 from 2019. Well, the city has now put out its list of supplemental budget items, and that will go to council tomorrow for information purposes before the public have a chance to weigh in on some of those submissions. That public consultation session will be taking place next month in February. Major items on tap for discussion in 2020, when talking about these supplemental items, include two new RCMP staff members, uh, an expansion in the hours of transit, uh, three quarters of a million dollars to develop a plan for upgrades to the RCMP Battle Street Detachment, 75000 for the expansion of the Riverside Park Pickleball Corps. That's some of the items that are up for discussion. A total of over $1.2 million worth of items in 2020 that will be up for consideration. Um, not all of that, of course, will be paid through taxes, some of that through uh, reserve funds and things along those lines. So we'll get into that with Kathy Humphrey, who will join me uh, to kick off the back half of today's show. And coming up next, I will be joined by defense lawyer Kyla Lee. Among the topics up for our usual Monday discussion here is uh, the Law Society of B.C. has actually won an injunction in B.C. Supreme Court to stop a Victoria legal researcher from working for lawyers or helping people in traffic court. So at the end of a nearly three-year battle, the legal regulator has shut down Jeremy Maddox services. This in spite of some concerns about access to justice. Maddox had unsuccessfully argued his services were permitted by the Legal Profession Act, which allows lawyers to hire and supervise non-lawyers to perform legal work. The Law Society, though, argued he wasn't supervised, so because he was not an employee, but rather an independent contractor, therefore he was in violation. So there is some concern out there from people who cannot afford, you know, the thousands of dollars it may cost to hire a lawyer, especially when talking about fighting a small traffic fine, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's, you know, 150 bucks, not worth $1,000 to fight it probably. But at the end of the day, when it comes to your license, it's probably something you still don't want on your record. So, you know, can someone provide legal advice despite not being a practicing lawyer? And, and you know, how far exactly can they take that advice? Can they represent you in court? Is that something that should be allowed? Well, in this case, it looks like the answer is no, but Kyla will give me her thoughts on that particular situation here in a little bit. And I also want to ask about the jurisdiction of pilot officers here. An Uber driver uh, was working in Surrey when he was called by what has been reported as Surrey bylaw officers. So the Surrey bylaw officers had actually booked a ride through this Uber driver in what was essentially a sting operation here to find this driver. So, um, yeah, he ended up being fined for not working with a business license. Of course, Surrey does not or has not approved ride-hailing services. They were recently approved for licenses, lifted and Uber, that is, in the Vancouver area, in that lower mainland area. But Surrey, of course, has other plans when it comes to ride-hailing services. So we'll get into a little bit about that and just sort of the upcoming situation with more cars set to hit the road in Vancouver um, as these ride-hailing services launch. So Kyla and I will be chatting more about all of that after this. So please stick around. we got more Jeff Andrea show coming up next after the break. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on Monday. I'm joined now by my usual Monday guest. It is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how you doing here today? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? I'm doing all right. How was your weekend? You got to spend it down in the, the sunny side of Arizona. I did, yes. I got to uh, work on a DUI uh, defense lawyers course, so that was good. <laughs> right on. Well, I'm a little bit jealous of the weather you got, but I can't complain because, like I was saying earlier, it's uh, it was a pretty nice weekend here in Kamloops, all things considered, especially when just, what, a week and a half ago we were looking at, like, minus 30, so I'm not complaining. Yeah. 
Thank you. All right. So let's start by talking a little bit about ride hailing here. So um, just wanted to start by asking sort of about the fact, you know, that Uber and Lyft now have these uh, licenses to operate in the Vancouver area. I mean, first, I guess, are you happy to see that step finally being taken by the provincial government now that these licenses are finally starting to roll out here? I am very happy to see this. I think it's something that we've needed for a long time. Uh, we haven't had enough of a supply of taxis to meet the demand um, that exists in the Lower Mainland. So it's good to see that there's finally another option for people who are, are commuting or, or trying to get you know around just when visiting the city. Yeah, so definitely good news, I think, from a consumer standpoint. Um, you know, as someone like myself who would want to take a taxi or a ride-hailing service, it's nice to see that there are more options. And, uh, you know, ride-hailing typically has been cheaper than taxis, which of course is another positive as well when looking at my pocketbook. But when it comes to, you know, the impact on the roadways, I mean, do you have some concerns at all as a lawyer when you're looking at, you know, a probably a, a significant increase in number of vehicles on the roadways? Like what kinds of problems can arise um, when you see an increase in congestion? Like what people have said happens when these ride hailing services do launch? Well, I mean, one of the big problems that we see when that happens is that commuting times get longer, which then means that the ride-hailing services cost longer. It also, the more vehicles you have on the roadway, the more likely it is that people are going to be involved in some type of an accident. So it does pose a bigger risk for members of the public. Um, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of people who were previously commuting using their own vehicles, um, you know, driving downtown, for example, to go out for the night and then leaving their vehicle overnight, will now no longer be making that decision and instead use a ride-hailing service both ways. So I, I think that we'll see some offsetting of, uh, of the impact of adding these vehicles to the road through the fact that people are using them as opposed to driving themselves. One thing that I, I wonder if you would see an increase in, because we've talked a lot about distracted driving over the course of, um, you know, when I have you on here on a weekly basis, and, uh, you know, we see a lot of gray area when it comes to the, the issue of distracted driving and what you can and can't do with your phone and whether it's mounted and all that kind of jazz. Uh, I'm just curious, do you think that we could see a, a big increase in the number of distracted fines that come with the result of people who are using apps on their phone to, uh, you know, make money, to collect rides, to, to charge fares? Are these the kinds of things that, um, you know, some officers may be willing to pull someone over and give you a ticket for? Oh, absolutely. I think we will see a surge in distracted driving tickets, um, particularly because the Uber app, if you're driving for you know, Uber or Lyft, it requires you to interact with it to some extent while you're operating the vehicle, either to accept a, you know, a ride from somebody um, or, to, uh, or to deal with directions or to even report a safety concern. Um, and so there, there are problems with how that is going to facilitate in respect of our provincial driving laws. And I don't think that we'll see police officers being lenient on Uber drivers. Yeah, it's definitely something I think that'll take some time to hash out. Um, we'll see what happens here in the coming months as these services really get into full high gear and, and start taking people on a lot of rides and what happens as a result of, of some traffic stops that will occur, um, you know, inevitably as a result. I, I also was curious, too, about your thoughts on the situation in Surrey because uh, it was a bit of an odd one for me to read here over the course of the weekend. Uber driver was working in Surrey. Um, there is no license for them to operate in Surrey. We all know about the situation about the, the municipality trying to keep ride-hailing services out. Um, but there was a guy, I guess, who was operating an Uber um, service in Surrey and bylaw officers actually ended up calling on him to come pick them up. And as he came to go give them a ride, was handed a ticket for operating without a license. I guess it was more of a warning, didn't actually get a fine from what I understand. But I mean, do you have some concern about how this is operating? I mean, when we see bylaw officers potentially or basically setting up sting operations, I don't know. That, that 
that's uh, something that doesn't really sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with me either. Um, maybe not for the same reasons. For a lot of people, this feels like entrapment, but mm-hmm. it doesn't actually meet the legal definition of entrapment. Police have, you know, good uh, or bylaw officers have good information to indicate that somebody is potentially violating a bylaw, and they're using a method available to them to investigate that. They're not trapping somebody um, and causing them to commit an offense they wouldn't otherwise have committed. Um, what I what sits improperly with me about it um, is that the law on whether or not an Uber driver is an employee or a contractor and therefore required to have a business license is not settled in Canada. And I don't think that bylaw officers should be ticketing people when it's not clear whether they are employees or whether they are contractors and have to have business licenses. Because if they're taking that enforcement action, it could compromise some of the cases that we've talked about, like the Uber and Heller case that we talked about um, a couple months ago that's currently on reserve before the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a, a number of issues that uh, could arise as a result of this too. Um, I guess one one thing that question I did have that uh, you know doesn't really have anything to do necessarily with this particular situation, but just sort of the jurisdiction, I guess, and how uh, operating a, an Uber or Lyft service would work. Like, if someone were to say hire me in Vancouver to drive them to Surrey, am I allowed to make that trip, or do I have to drop them off at the Surrey border and say figure it out from here because I'm not allowed to drive in there, or you know because the transaction action takes place in Vancouver. Am I allowed to complete that trip? I'm just, I'm sort of um, trying to wrap my head around how that potentially would work. Not that I'm sure drivers are wanting to make that trip necessarily on a very regular basis, but it could happen. Uh, what, what, how would that work? What is the actual jurisdiction and how operating a vehicle from one city to another would, would, would happen? Do you have any ideas? That's also an open question because uh, for for some cities, they have bylaws that are in place that govern what happens when people start their work elsewhere and then bring it into the city, whereas others don't regulate that. And they say if the work is started in another jurisdiction, we're not going to police it if it happens to cross into our borders. Um, so it really depends on you know which cities and which bylaws are in effect. We may see conflicts of laws between cities. Um, But if we look at the way that the bylaws were in place for taxi services, um, they tended to limit the the issue to where you picked up the passenger. So if you were picking up a passenger um, in Vancouver and dropping them off in Surrey, you couldn't pick up in Surrey and then drive somebody back to Vancouver um, if you were a taxi regulated from Vancouver. And I would expect that essentially cities and municipalities are going to take the same approach when it comes to ride hailing, that the transaction occurs where it begins as a to where it ends. That's uh, that's how I understand it as well. But you know, there just seems to be so many questions around a service that's taken so long to implement. And you know, part of the reason why the government said it took so long to bring this stuff in was because they wanted to make sure it was done right. And yet, as it's starting to roll out, there's still so many questions that are left unanswered. That um, you know, it's it's kind of disappointing because you feel like it should be figured out by now. If we're going to take so long to implement a service and to do it, quote unquote, to do it right. Um, you know, it should be pretty obvious once it actually gets off the ground how it's going to work. So kind of disappointing from my perspective in that regard. I did want to get into one other thing because you brought this up over my uh, over the weekend, excuse me, and, um, you know, the issue of traffic tickets and how they go about fighting them in court. Uh, the Law Society of BC won an injunction in BC Supreme Court to stop a Victoria legal researcher from working for lawyers or helping people in traffic court. So I just want to get your thoughts on this decision. I mean, I'm not sure how to feel about the whole thing, honestly, when talking about the need for representation 
representation and cheaper representation. Um, and yet we're talking about someone who technically isn't a lawyer, but in this case does have a law degree. So, you know, just what are your opinions on this situation and how it all kind of unfolded? Do you think people should be able to represent individuals in traffic court if they are not a practicing lawyer? I don't think so. And there's two reasons for it. Um, the first reason is if you open the door um, for people like this individual who has a, a law degree and has had some legal training, um, you're opening it enough that people who have absolutely no legal training, knowledge, or skill are going to push their way in. And you're going to have people who are not competent to represent people in traffic court potentially taking their money, um, potentially taking advantage of individuals, and there's no accountability. With lawyers, we are highly regulated. If I go to traffic court and I do something that's contrary to my client's instructions or something unethical, um, or I just take somebody's money and then don't, you know, show up to court and plead them guilty without trying anything, you know, they have recourse against me and it could affect me professionally. But for all of these people that are potentially doing this uh, on the side without any regulation, they put the public at risk. And that's why it's important to have a lawyer. I also disagree with the fact that lawyers are too expensive. Traffic court is, is, is something where you can find a lawyer at a very affordable price. There are lots of lawyers who are willing to do it. Um, and if you look at the fees that this person was charging for the work they were doing, it's actually about the same as what we charge. <laughs> Oh, well, that's important information because I think that was one of the big arguments, right, was the cost of lawyers compared to the cost of this individual services being uh, supposedly cheaper. But if that's not the case, then that, that does raise some more questions um, as well. I guess so in this particular situation, would you agree then that this individual should be uh, or would be okay like to give some advice to someone to represent themselves um, but obviously not represent them in court directly? Um, I think as long as they're giving information and not advice, then yes. But as soon as you, you delve into the area of giving legal advice, you are violating law society rules and he would run afoul of the injunction. Yeah, what surprises enough. me is that this person has a law degree and why don't they just become a lawyer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had questions about that one as well, but for whatever reason, I guess the, they have not taken those uh, next steps. But anyway, we'll see. I mean, maybe he'll have more of an incentive now to go about doing that. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, Kyla, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, as always. Love talking to you every Monday and look forward to doing it again next week. Great. Thank you. Awesome. That was Acumen Law's Kyla Lee talking about ride-hailing services, as well as, you know, whether some of these individuals who are not practicing lawyers should be allowed to represent people in traffic court. She says no, um, and pretty obvious reasoning as to why. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about the Kamloops City budget. Yes, the 2020 municipal budget is getting closer to being finalized, and some supplemental budget items will be presented to Council tomorrow for information purposes. I'll be joined by the City's Finance Director to talk more about that after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Monday the 27th. Thank you so much for tuning in. The city of Kamloops is getting closer to finalizing the 2020 municipal budget. The public will be invited to have their say on the document here next month, February 20th at Sandman Center. And council will be looking at a number of supplemental items starting tomorrow. About 1.25 million worth of items will be up for consideration in 2020. And if my calculations are correct, $385,000 worth of those items are proposed to be paid for through a tax increase. I'm joined now by the city's director of finance, Kathy Humphrey. Thanks so much for coming in studio. Oh yeah, no problem. So let me just start by kind of getting a rundown of the budget process. Just kind of where are we for those listening who want to have their say and have a little bit of input on what's going on? Just sort of where are we in this process towards getting the 2020 municipal budget all figured out? 
So the budget process starts in the fall and uh, we have already put forward the budget to council, which they've approved, which is we call the provisional budget. So that's basically how much money does it cost to keep doing what we've done uh, in the previous years. So the next step now is uh, a bunch of new items, which are called supplementals. And we will be presenting those to council tomorrow with them making a decision towards the end of February. Perfect. So uh, let's start by kind of going over what tomorrow we're looking at. You mentioned here, you know, supplemental items are being presented. Um, I have the list here in front of me. There are a total of 11 items that are being proposed. Um, you know, just sort of go getting information tomorrow. That's the whole intent of the presentation that will take place. It's not even really a presentation, I guess, tomorrow. Yeah, it's just a council report tomorrow with uh, the recommendation being that council receive it for information. The goal was to get the information out to council and to the public so that there could be some discussion and uh, invite the public to come to the public budget meeting on February 20th uh, in advance of when council will actually make the decision, which is at the Committee of the Whole meeting on February 25th. Perfect. So about a month here to kind of look over some of these things and decide what people in the community would like to see, or, or can they propose some additions, I guess, at that point? Or like, is that sort of closed off when looking at that February 21st meeting? So basically uh, what we're looking at is... Um, the community can always propose new items, but they likely won't get included in the 2020 budget. So we will be collecting ideas and working with the relevant departments, and then we will work them into the 2021 and future budget, sort of a, a one-year process to sort of investigate them. Perfect. I think that's a good timeline for people to be aware of. Um, so when looking here at this year's supplemental items, 11 items, I guess, how does that compare to normal? Is that a smaller amount than usual? It doesn't feel like a very high number. Yeah, I mean, I think over the years we've had anywhere from sort of 10 to 15 items. Uh, we've tried really hard to um, have the departments really think about what they need and not just sort of throw ideas um, at the wall. So I think this list is a, a result of teams looking at their um, goals and a council strategic plan and then trying to actually be strategic in what's being put forward. So uh, you can correct me on any of these numbers if I have them wrong as it stands right now, but the proposed budget as it stands is about $115 million, and these supplemental items are looking to add a total of about about 1.25 million, somewhere in there. Um, I guess, you know, is that, first of all, is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, the one thing to, to note with a lot of these supplementals is we've been trying to get council and the public to look at a five-year financial plan. So not all of these items proposed are for 2020. So some of them are starting uh, in 2021. Mm -hmm. A few of them are out as far as 2023 and 2024. So what we're looking for is council to approve the project or the process, and then uh, we will work towards building or doing or, or whatever it is um, in the three and four years out. Right, and that makes sense. So when I'm talking about that $1.25 million figure, that does not include the full 11 items because some of these are looking at things in, in 2021, uh, 2022 and beyond, talking about things like the... Um uh, the RCMP um, training facility, like that's an $8 million project. So we're looking ahead to 2025 on that. So obviously that's not included here. Um, I guess, uh, you know, what are some of the, have you heard any concerns about any of these things at this point in time, or is this pretty straightforward as it stands? Yeah, we haven't really heard any concerns, but again, we just put this out to the mm -hmm. public and to council on Friday. So, um, you know, that's kind of what we expect over the next uh, few weeks is to hear concerns or um, enthusiasm, I guess, is the other uh, option for what people think of these. Um, there are some community Request. The pickleball team has been working really hard um, over the last year to try and increase their um, number of courts, which is one of the community requests that's there. And then a lot of the new staffing is a result of growth in the city and um, a lot of listening to the public about what they would like to see more of. So as we, as an example, as we increase the tree canopy within the community, we need uh, resulting arborists to look after those trees. So a lot of the stuff that's in the plan is um, just trying to keep up with the growth and activities council's doing. Uh, when, when 
when looking at these items, I guess, how much time was spent uh, from an administrative standpoint trying to figure out, I mean, maybe this goes department by department and not necessarily through you directly, but how much time is spent trying to figure out where these things can be funded from? Because most of them are, are not being asked to, to be funded through new taxation, they're through reserves or, or some other form of funding. So, I mean, how important is that to make sure that uh, when looking at a lot of these new items that they're not just going directly into the tax base? So that's kind of what the finance department does. We get a lot of these items from the departments, at least in a rough draft state uh, in the summer. So we spend quite a lot of time through the fall uh, trying to balance out, um, you know, does it fit in our asset management plans? Does it fit in uh, some of the reserves that are being built up? And how does it make the most sense to fund it? So basically, the tax side of things, we try to fund ongoing items that are, you know, um, staff salaries, things that really don't end. Uh, One-time items, we try really hard to fund from reserves because they're, they're not ongoing. So some of these, um, you know, ongoing items that are looking at, you know, uh, two new staff um, people for the RCMP, uh, the arborist that you had mentioned, looking at a uh, trades plumber. I mean, a lot of these are pretty small items at the end of the day, just talking about, you know, maybe 85000 per per uh, staff member or in the case of the arborist, about $93,000. Um, you know, so these are the kind of items, I guess, that are looking at, you know, permanent FTEs, and these will be ongoing budget um, inclusions moving forward if if they are indeed approved. Um, so that makes why that's why it makes sense to, to fund it through the tax base because it's going to be an ongoing cost. Absolutely, yeah. So it doesn't make sense uh, from a financial perspective to increase your taxes for something that's only one year. Um, so that's why we either try to save up for it or fund it from reserves such as gaming or community works or some of the other reserves we have access for. Um, salaries you have to fund every year, so it doesn't make sense to use up those reserves that are potentially not um, reliable. Right. Um, one thing that I think is kind of exciting I guess from my perspective about all of this is the um, transit expansion, looking at quite a big expansion here for the transit hours. I mean, can you maybe just summarize what you know about this a little bit, just in terms of, um, you know, how big of an expansion we're looking at, because there's some money here coming from the, the province, I believe, to, to go about doing this. Um, I know there's a number of people out there who are concerned about, you know, maybe transit access could be a little better than it currently is. So this looks like it should have a pretty big impact. And it, from what I understand, it starts in September. Yeah, so the transit year in terms of hours uh, runs September till August. So the um, if approved from council, this would be uh, 4,500 hours, I believe, into the transit schedule. And our transit planners basically work with BC Transit to figure out which are the routes that have either the most people where the buses are full or um, have people waiting for buses where they're going by, you know, can't pe- pick people up or areas where they've heard from the public where they don't run late enough and, and that sort of stuff. So they work really hard with the public to try and match demand with um, the increased hours that we're hoping to get onto this. So would you anticipate, I mean, and again, and this might be more of a question for transit, but if this were to be approved by council, then transit would probably go about starting some sort of consultation process to find what are the best ways to go about adding these hours to its service? Yeah, I can't speak exactly as to how it works. I mean, I know in the last couple of years, they've done several consultations Mm -hmm. already. So I think they probably have a list, at least for the early hours to add in. And then as those hours get added, they, you know, continuously work with transit to do surveys and see how it's working. Yeah, makes sense. Um, And it's probably part of that uh, downtown transportation strategy and all of those other plans that are ongoing, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the transportation master plan and the downtown plan, all of those things, you know, all work together to make sure that they're all aligned. Perfect. Um, There's not a whole lot else I have left to to request from you here, Kathy. I mean, we're looking ahead to uh, that February 25th date for when things will be finalized, February 21st for the public to have their say. February 20th. Sorry, Sorry. excuse me. Thank you so much for correcting me. Um, Yeah, so February 20th, what what do you recommend for people looking ahead to that date? I mean, obviously, you want to hear from the public and and their their opinions and thoughts on, on how things are rolling out so far. 
Yeah, so I think on February 20th, if uh, people either um, want to come to the public budget meeting and talk to us about the items that have been presented, or as I said earlier, to present new items that we can work into future budgets. Um, the alternative is you can't come to the meeting on February 20th. The budget tab on the Let's Talk page is active, and you can add comments in there, and which will be presented to council as part of the whole package. Right on. I think it's always important when we're looking at the, the city that people live in that they do take part in the process to figure out how their taxes are being spent. So hopefully some people take some time to, to be involved and in whether it be meeting on that February 20th date at Sandman Center or taking the time to go online and provide their comments. I hope uh, you get a lot of submissions. So thanks so much for coming in, Kathy. Appreciate your time. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. That was uh, the city's finance director, Kathy Humphrey, talking about the 2020 municipal budget and a number of supplemental items up for discussion or will be um, accepted by council tomorrow and then will be up for discussion uh, before that February 25th date of when council will look to approve the final budget. Coming up after the break, I'll be chatting Blazers hockey. So stick around. We'll have more Jeff Andrea show coming up after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on Monday. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. The Kamloops Blazers had a so-so weekend. We'll call it a 50-50 weekend in Prince George. They scored a 3-0 win on Friday night before falling to the Cougars 3-1 on Saturday. Here now to break it all down is the voice of the Kamloops Blazers, Mr. John Keane. John, how you doing here? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Doing good. Yeah, just nice uh, sunny day here and uh, ready to start a brand new week. Yeah, we got some good action coming up. Three games for the Blazers here in the coming days. We'll get to that later, but we'll start by taking a quick look back here. So I want to start with uh, Friday night and the incident with Connor Zeri. I mean, he got a five-minute major in a game misconduct in that 3 nothing win. Uh, I'll just kind of break the play down briefly. So Santazzo is carrying the puck down the left side. Zeri charging towards the net on the opposite wing, and as Santazzo sort of pushes the puck towards the net, Zeri cuts in. Cougars goalie Taylor Goche comes a bit outside the crease, and Zeri kind of looks like he tries to get out of the way, but ends up kind of clipping him, um, mostly in the head from what I saw as he skated by. So I just want to kind of get your initial thoughts on the play itself. Zeri ended up getting that game misconduct out of it. Um, did you think he deserved that one game suspension as a result? How did you see this play in real time? Well, I don't know if deserved is, is the right word. I, I just think that's what the WHL does right now. Whenever they have a major penalty, more often than not, they tag along some sort of a suspension with it. It's just a way to back their officials, and it's a way to, you know, to really uh, protect uh, uh, players, and in this case, protect goaltenders. And it's it's very rare now for the WHL not to back their officials and say, okay, that was a major penalty, but we'll uh, we don't think it was uh, suspension worthy. That's just what they'll do. Um, um, so, you know, for the very thing that makes this team great sometimes, it's also a bit of an Achilles heel, and that is, you know, tenacious, getting to the net and uh, playing aggressive. Uh, you know, this team is the most suspended team of the WHL again this season for a second straight year, and, um, you know, I'm sure there's some concern there, but, you know, Connor Zary, if you know him and you've seen him play, you know, he's not, there's no intent there. He's not trying to, you know, in any way, you know, go and, and hit that goaltender intentionally. Yeah, it looked just sort of like one of those plays where if you're a Blazers fan, you thought, you know, he did what he could to try to get out of the way and did, you know, there was no intent there. Whereas if you're a Cougars fan, you might be thinking, well, maybe there is no intent, but he, uh, you know, still skated into the line where, where uh, Goche was coming out and he hit him in the head and that's always a dangerous play. So depending on what side of the uh, the ice you're on, it felt like, you know, you either felt he deserved a one-game suspension or, or didn't. It was just sort of whatever team you're cheering for in that stance from, from how I saw it anyway. 
Yeah, you know, and and the thing is here, what what I think the league needs to take into effect is watch the other team's reaction. There's been two uh, suspensions where the Blazers have been in contact with the goaltender, but in both occasions, the other team did not take any exception. No one on the ice, and these guys know on the ice what is and what isn't uh, intentional. Right. Uh, both times this season, there's been no. Uh, a means to go and try to get revenge or go at that player for bumping their goaltender. And these players know. I mean, I think the league has to start looking at the reaction. Back on in Winnipeg when Montana Onibuchi was suspended one game, the trainer didn't even come out to their goaltender to, to attend to him, um, you know, knowing there was no injury, there's no intent, nothing. And uh, sometimes I think you get lost in kind of, you can't see the trees through the forest sometimes in some of these plays, but it is what it is, you move on. Yeah, the reaction does uh, does tell you quite a bit sometimes when, when you look at how the other team responds to a sure. situation. Um, I'll move ahead here to Saturday night. I mean, um, you know, you put this out there, it was the end of a shutout streak that lasted over 234 minutes. Um, I might have a little issue with uh, the, the minute streak there, but we'll, we'll, I'll ask you about that afterwards. But first First of all, sure. I just want to get into just the goaltending that you've seen and the way this team has played defense over the course of that time. I mean, 234 minutes between allowing a goal. That's, you know, almost four full games worth of action. I mean, just talk about this team's ability to keep the puck out of its own net. Yeah, you made a good point there. It's just it's more than the goaltending, right? It's a team effort type thing. And, you know, a lot of these um, streaks, you know, for example, they're giving up around 20 shots per game here. And that's not taking anything away from the goaltenders because when they've been called upon, they've made some saves and they've got some breaks. They've had some pucks go off posts and pucks stay out. And, you know, you need uh, you need some breaks to go 234-plus minutes without allowing a goal. And, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, an unbelievable feat. And uh, as far as we can find, it's a franchise record. You know, shutouts back. In the 80s were few and far between, let alone, you know, three back-to-back-to-back, and then you add, uh, you know, bookend that with, with shutout time as well. So, yeah, it's it's just a knack where this, this blue line is really deep. It's a team that plays with the puck a lot, and when you have the puck a lot, that's the best way to keep it out of your net, right, is to, is to uh, the best offense, uh, the best defense is offense, they say, and, you know, this team uh, plays with the puck more often than not. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, touch on that calculation there really briefly. So, oh, 234 oh, hey, minutes. You do know, you do know I, I got in a radio because I'm not <laughs> good at math, right? I okay. mean, that's why we go. This is Okay, it's not a matter of math. It's just a matter of merit then, okay? So, uh, you know, okay. you say 234 minutes of shutout hockey, but can you really count that time uh, in that game against Tri-City? Because I assume you're tacking on the end of the game where it was, I believe, a 12-3 to win uh, before the 9 nothing win in the next game. So, obviously, that counts as a shutout 9 nothing, but... You you know, the last 20 minutes when you're up 12-3, can you count that as shutout hockey? All right, okay, so this is not about uh, logistics, about semantics. Okay, <laughs> I, can, I can deal with it. That's no problem. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure you do. I mean, even though Tri-City is still a major junior hockey club here, right? And, uh, and the fact is uh, they did score three goals in that game Friday night. Uh, their last goal was mid-second period on the Friday. You carry that into the 9 nothing shutout. Uh, then you carry that into back-to-back shutouts you know, um, you know, going in against the Vancouver Giants, uh, and then the Prince George Cougars again here. So yeah, maybe the schedule wasn't as difficult here, but hey, you can't fault the Blazers for that. That's not, you know, that's not their, uh, that's not their problem. They just have to go out there and play the game. Yeah, no, I, I don't disregard that. I wasn't talking about their competition. I was just meaning like, if there's three goals on the board, can you count those last 20 minutes of shutout hockey? That's more what I was getting at because you know, obviously a shutout isn't on the board. That's all. That's my only contention. Yeah, I don't, I don't make the, I don't make the rules. <laughs> I just. Yeah, I just go by how they do it, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Anyway.
anyways, moving along, we'll get over that part of it. Um, you know, what is the deal with with the Cougars and the and their ability to play the Blazers this year? I mean, they're three and two in the five total games they've played. Uh, you know, the Cougars only have 13 wins on the season, and three of those are coming up against Kamloops. I mean, what what is the difficulty that the Blazers are having against this PG team? Okay, well, here here's what it comes down to. There, their goaltender Taylor Gauthier has played in all five games against the Blazers this season, which is fine. That's that's the that's the way it is. He's their number one goaltender. His save percentage in those five games is nine fifty four. So, if you want to play devil's advocate here, it's pretty amazing. The Blazers have won three of those games, uh, or uh, or two of those games, uh, when the goaltender goes and puts up a nine fifty four save percentage. Every team has a puncher's chance in the league based on. You know, a goaltender can steal the game. It's just the fact that this goaltender has gone out and stolen his fair share here. And, um, you know, it's it's tough to lose a game when you give up 16 shots on goal. But, you know, PG just, that's, they, they make no bones about it. They, they, they don't apologize for it. They're like, we can't match firepower. We can't play end-to-end hockey. Would we like to play that way? Sure, but we can't because it's not conducive to winning. So they try to just collapse in front of their net, block shots, almost play with, you know, three or four goaltenders, and then try to be opportunistic. If they can spring a guy on a lead pass, breakaway, dumping the zone, that's what they're going to do. Uh, and, and they tell you that's how we have to do it. So, you know, I say good job, Prince George Cougars. Uh, you, you know the way you have to play, and it's your only chance of winning, and they've gone out and done it pretty successfully. Yeah, I've always been impressed when I've watched that Cougars team. Not that there's a lot of talent there, but just they seem to play really well structured. I don't know if it's just really well coached team, and that's you know something that they, they use to their advantage. I mean, they only have 13 wins, like I said, but every time I've seen them play, they, they always seem to be in the game and, and, and you know being competitive. So uh, it's, it's a tough team for me to read. Uh, anyways, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, John. we got three games coming up here. Uh, you know, a weekend series, a home-and-home miniseries with Vancouver on Friday, Saturday. But before that, Wednesday night at home here in Kamloops against Spokane. Uh, Spokane's a team, you know, that, that they've had a decent season, maybe not, uh, you know, quite at the top of the WHL, but uh, still really fighting in that uh, American division. So what are you looking forward to our, here on a Wednesday night? Okay, well, if you used to play the old video game, uh, NHL hockey, you know, you, you had an option to go line changes on or off, right? Uh, if you were to play the Blazers and the Spokane Chiefs line changes off, it would be pretty evenly matched. I mean, uh, Spokane can throw out five, six top-end players, I mean, the best in the league, uh, and a really good goaltender, but then, then their depth falls off. So we're talking Ty Smith uh, on the Blue Line World Juniors, mm-hmm. Adam Beckman, of course, who comes in with you know Zane Franklin, they're neck-and-neck for the WHL scoring race, uh, Eli Zumak and uh, Toporowski, uh, guys that can really play the game. Where the Blazers have the advantage is depth. There's no doubt about it. The Blazers can roll deep, uh, deeper on the blue line and uh, up front. So uh, this is going to be a tough matchup here for sure. Spokane, I heard Sean Clouston say it this morning, you know, really, he didn't use the word underachieve, but I think I will. Uh, they definitely have a lot of talent there, and uh, they're a tough out. So I expect a tough game on Wednesday. Right on. Well, we'll look forward to it. Of course, you can hear it right here on Radio NL this Wednesday night. Uh, puck drop starts at, what, 7.05, I believe it is. So uh, definitely check it out. You can hear John Keane, the voice of the Kamloops Blazers, uh, right here on, on NL starting Wednesday night. Thanks so much for doing this, John. Always love talking okay, to you. Jeff. Yeah, have a great week. See ya. You as well. That's uh, the voice of the Kamloops Blazers, John Keane. Uh, looking back there at a one-on-one weekend. And, of course, like I mentioned, we got three games coming up here over the next five days. Wednesday night uh, at home against Spokane. And then a home-and-home miniseries with Vancouver on Friday and Saturday night. So take, take, uh, take the time to uh, listen to those games here on NL. It should be fun.
That wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.